Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we get to spend time with Anthony Bontrager, who is a managing director of the West River Group. He's focused on investing in seed and early stage companies in the U.S. Pacific Northwest. Anthony, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about the West River Group? Sure. West River Group is an investment firm based in Seattle, Washington. We've been deploying capital across the global innovation economy for the better part of 22 years as both venture debt and equity investors. For our debt business, we raised eight funds over a course of 10 years, about $2 billion of AUM across those funds. And with those dollars, we were Silicon Valley Bank's largest lending partner until they acquired that business from us back in December of 2020. And so today, West River is focused purely on its equity business. We've got four key strategies that we really focus on, if you will. That's our technology fund, which I lead. We have an immersive experience fund that really is just designed to monetize the deal flow we see from the consumer-based and location-based entertainment space through our involvement in Top Golf from its very earliest days. And then decarbonization is also an area that we're keenly focused on. Beyond that, we've been known to create different investment products for our limited partners into different investments, vehicles or markets or strategies that don't kind of fit within the kind of the three core pieces that we typically spend our time on. And that's one of the things that really makes us, I think, differentiated from your traditional VC is that ability to basically make sure that we can actually help our investment partners deploy capital into that innovation economy in areas pretty broadly, in fact. Do you mind giving a couple of examples of that? Yeah. In terms of the different kind of vehicles that we do? Yeah. Sure. What we're probably best known for is an SPV we developed and invested in this little driving range company in Dallas, Texas, that we ultimately turned into what is now known as Topgolf. Our CEO, Eric Anderson, got in front of this company. They had the vision to be what Topgolf was, but they just couldn't quite put it into practice. Eric said, look, there's something here. Even when people said, we're not going to invest in a driving range business. And what he was able to do over the course of 14 years as the company's chairman and one of the largest investors is nothing short of extraordinary. So I think Top Golf is a great example of that. Makes for a great LP meeting too. It's not a bad location. I will admit it. It's definitely nice to have. And we sold that to Callaway during the pandemic. Eric is still the vice chairman now of what is now called Top Golf Callaway Brands. So I think that really highlights the value that Top Golf has brought to that business. And the three different strategies have a dedicated fund to each. Is that how you've organized the assets? That's right. So each fund has its own pool of capital, its own investment team, its own investment committee, different investor base. We do have some crossovers. We have a very large anchor LP base that invests very broadly across West River's products and funds, et cetera. Right now, we're at about $1.5 of AUM now that we've sold off the debt business. And we're looking to obviously expand that. Got it. And talk to us a little bit about the technology platform that you're involved in. Which fund is this? And then what is the staging and the thesis behind it? 
Great question. So our technology fund, this is our flagship technology fund. We're raising fund number two right now. We've already had a first close on that. We're actively deploying capital. And we invest at the early stage. So seed series A is where we like to live, though we will do a series B or a series C round as part of our barbell strategy, if you will. Where we like to enter a company is what we call post-revenue pre-scale stage doesn't mean you need to have a million bucks of ARR, but we really want to see that the market is buying off of your rate card, be that on a per seat model, a usage base, annual contract, et cetera. Just show us that there's actual market receptivity to what you're bringing to them. From there, then we can help. We come in, we deploy capital into those businesses. We're very hands-on investors. So we typically will lead our investments in these companies. We take a board seat and we like to come in and add value beyond just basically being a check writer. And that spans, runs the gamut of business development and customer intros because we have a very broad strategic partner network amongst all of the different partners in the firm. We have FP&A teams who can come in and help build the startups, pricing models, financial models, et cetera, and set the right KPI so everybody understands where our North Star sits and how we're marching towards that. And then just other areas of helping with staffing, governance, which is a big thing for us. And then obviously diversity. One of the things they really try to help companies build muscle memory around is bringing in that plurality of thought. And as a hands-on investor, what sort of advice are you giving your company specifically right now navigating these very choppy waters that we're in? It's cliche to say, cut the burn, bring all that stuff down. Because we're hands-on investors, I would say most, if not all of our companies actually sit in a really good position right now, all have very strong balance sheets. We went through a very deep analysis during the early days of COVID across the portfolio and making sure that for the companies right now, basically the entire portfolio had the wherewithal to last through this marketplace because we always anticipated there was going to be a downturn for some bizarre reason, the market treated COVID as the best thing ever to come around. And you saw valuations and spend go through the roof. So today where we are is we're in a situation where sales cycles are lengthening and customers aren't buying as many seats as they normally would because the customers are shrinking as well. And so we're just basically cautioning patience, just being mindful of how you're investing the capital that's been given to you and just continue to be relentless. And if there's things that you know were nice to have and don't really solve an immediate problem, let's push those out a little bit. But beyond that, we've tried not to be too alarmist with our portfolio companies. Our message has simply been, look, we are long-term investors. We believe in you guys. And if the money is needed, it will be there. And how about the geographic or sector focus? We focus on B2B technology companies. And those companies are located in the Pacific Northwest region, anywhere from Oregon to Vancouver, BC. And that thesis, that geographic thesis is really centered around the fact that Seattle's the home of AWS, Azure, Google's GCP, plus institutions like the Allen AI Institute, University of Washington, et cetera. And that has created in my mind, an unprecedented amount of entrepreneurial exhaust, which has actually caught the attention of a lot of Silicon Valley stalwarts. Facebook has an outpost out here, SpaceX, Apple, you name it, because they all want to be, one, located around the cloud capital of the world, too, and then benefit from some of the tremendous advancements that are coming out of UW and Allen AI in the areas of AI and machine learning, et cetera. And so you've got just an absolutely fertile market of some super smart people who are doing some great things in an area that hasn't had the kind of capital availability that say Silicon Valley has. And we like that. We view it as a tremendous white space that we really want to participate in for the long term. And within the technology sector specifically, since you head up that particular vertical, what are some trends right now that you're seeing that you find to be particularly exciting? 
core investment pieces outside the regionality piece is focusing on companies that leverage machine learning and AI across large data sets. We think that data really is going to permeate basin of some tremendous value creation. From there, then we look at kind of key vertical markets that sit on top of that. And so for us that we see exciting today, security, DeFi, specifically the area of blockchain, but not so much on the monetization side, but more on the foundational elements of blockchain and what it can do for different kind of capital market pieces. Sales enablement is another area that we're really excited about. I think I may have mentioned security already, data management, you name it. Those are the areas that we think there's some, there's a picks and shovels element to that. I won't say that's all that we do, but we do like being a critical component to a larger organization's business plan. Whether you're in the sales business and you need to have a product that actually helps you respond to RFPs or get your proposals out faster, or you're in the research space and look, you've got massive amounts of unstructured data that you have no idea where it is or how to make use of that. We want to invest in the technologies that will basically bubble those things up and help make those companies' lives easier. Is there an example maybe you can give us from one of your portfolio companies that kind of tells that story? Yeah, absolutely. There is, there's a couple of companies, actually. Chorus Software is a company that, that we're really excited about. How do you spell that? Q-O-R-U-S. So it's Chorus. I think the website's chorusdocs.com. But what Chorus does is they actually help companies with their proposal and RFP response process, and they automate the entire thing. Now, that sounds pretty easy, but how do they actually do it? What they do is they go in and through their technology, it will scan a company's entire document store. So all of your old proposals, all of your old RFPs, et cetera, they scan that. They use natural language processing, topic clustering, entity extraction, et cetera. And they organize that in a really robust taxonomy. Then the product itself lives actually within the Microsoft Office stack. So let's say, Thanasis, you're in... Microsoft Word, you've loaded up an RFP response and you're like, how the heck do I answer this thing? It's going to take me days, if not a week to go through this thing. Well, what you do is you highlight all the questions, you hit the course button on the ribbon, and it will go through and having scanned all of your prior documents, it will suggest to you the actual answers for that specific proposal. And it will score those based upon relevancy and how well the system believes it's answering that question. And it will give you three additional answers that you've used previously, as well as their relevancy scores. And you can use those, you can modify those, et cetera, and the system automatically remembers that. And so what you're doing is you're taking what has historically been a week to two week process involving multiple personnel down to a matter of minutes and utilizing one person. They had one company in particular, one of their customers did an analysis and they said over the course of a year, we saved $3 million in terms of the time spent on our proposal response time and increased our win rate by over 10%. So we're talking about cost savings, increased win rate, et cetera, by using this advanced AI machine learning, et cetera, for this specific problem within the broader sales enablement space. That's a similar to a pretty broad theme that we have seen in the last three, four years, which is workflow automation. Is that an area that you're seeing AI and ML in particular be very useful? We are. As a matter of fact, I've looked at a couple of other companies in that business process automation space who are heavily using AI and machine learning to augment what has historically been Deloitte coming in and basically sending people with clipboards behind and marking down what people are doing and trying to find efficiencies there. So things like computer vision married with machine learning as an example, all of those technologies are helping companies be much, much more efficient in what they do. 
you. And again, it all drops down to the bottom line. So again, it's an enablement play that we think is really important going forward. We have an investment in a similar company called HyperScience that uses AI to replace data entry, manual data entry by people. And I just wonder sometimes, there's always the debate, are you creating new jobs? Or are you taking jobs away that are not going to be replaced? And so I'm curious about how you think about this and also how deep you think the potential is. Are we just scratching the surface of what these technologies can do in changing old industries or old ways of doing things? Or we're halfway there and there's not as many opportunities? Or how do you think about that? I think we're I think we're scratching the surface, to be quite honest. I think there's a lot of areas where efficiencies can be brought into organizations. If you look at the project management space, for example, right, you've got companies like Smartsheet, Mondays, and all of these guys out there. And yet still a vast majority of the market is still using Excel and kind of swivel chair business processes. So if those companies haven't yet just completely dominated the marketplace, it tells you that in areas like traditional BPA, we've got a long ways to go. Now to your other question, Thanasis, I don't think that we are actually displacing people. I think we're simply making them more efficient, right? Because if you look at an organization, their job is to sell product and to bring on new customers. And if you can basically take people from spending an obscene amount of time trying to put together a proposal response, cutting that time down and making them more efficient, increasing their win rate and keeping things consistent, that I think will then allow basically those other people who are just kind of cogs in the wheel to become much, much more productive. And I think everybody wins as a result of that. That may be a little utopian view, but that's our working thesis. And so shifting gears a little bit, would love to hear about your personal story, how you came to be in venture capital. Sure. I think like a lot of folks, I started off as an operator. So I'd been in the telecom and broadcast media space for gosh, over a decade plus. I had a couple of successful exits through that process and started advising a number of different companies, NBC, Viacom, et cetera. And then started getting phone calls from local family offices here in the region saying, hey, look, we've got this venture portfolio. We really don't know what we're doing. Can you help us go in and figure things out for us? And what became just helping out some friends who had invested in me early on in my career became really a full-time job with multiple families managing their family office portfolios. And so I did that for a number of years. I actually went to the McCaw family office at Eagle River Holdings, ran one of their divisions and also participated in a number of the investments that they were doing. And then decided to step out and create my own fund and started talking to a bunch of different investors around that. Again, same thesis, Northwest focus, early stage B2B software technology. And my largest LP says, hey, look, we're also invested in the guys at West River who they want to do something similar in the Northwest. Maybe let's get together and do something at scale, right? Because it was going to be like a very small single GP kind of play. And that was back in, gosh, end of 16, early 17. And as I started getting together with Eric Anderson, who I'd known for over a decade, we said, yeah, this makes sense. Let's do something here. Eric wanted to deploy capital much more robustly in the Northwest region, as did I. And we came together, we launched a $100 million fund one, deployed that capital in some great verticals, had a fun time doing it and said, let's do this again. So here we are with fund two. And what's your pace of deployment been like this year specifically? You guys remained active or... A little bit more cautious. We're active. We're cautiously active. Here's the thing about the Pacific Northwest, right? Because it doesn't have the availability of capital, the easily available capital, let's say the Silicon Valley has, we don't see the huge spikes in valuations that go on elsewhere. So what's happening today isn't disrupting us as much as it is other areas. So 
For us, it's still business as usual. What we are seeing, however, is that, look, it's becoming a much more less asymmetric in terms of the relationship between founder and investor, right? So we're able to now get the terms that we would normally would have asked for before kind of the market went crazy. We're not seeing yet participant preferred things like that, but you know, there's an argument that says that those kind of terms could come back. But I just think there's a much more equal relationship now going on. And so we've just simply kept our pace up. I think what we are seeing, though, is that the time from initial meeting, the term sheet is starting to lengthen, which I think is a good thing. We've never been ones to rush to a term sheet. We have a very detailed due diligence process we go through. It's typically three to four weeks because at that time, when we issue a term sheet, we are not pulling it back. We are moving forward. So yes, so we've been active and we've made two investments so far this year. We're in the midst of underwriting deal number three. And we're deep in diligence on what we expect to be our fourth investment out of fund two by the end of this year. All staying within that fintech, security, sales enablement, digital media play that we've come to grow and love, which is our standard pacing, by the way. We typically see ourselves doing four to five investments a year. People have made some comment about how maybe in early stage, you don't see as much ups or downs as business as, as usual, obviously, as you get later and Series C, D, et cetera, pre-IPO. There were inflated valuations last year that have come down. What is your perspective about that? Is that kind of what you're seeing in the market? It is today. You know this as well as I do. There's going to be a lag between the later stage deals and the valuation hits they've been taking and how that's going to trickle down into the early stage space. I think that's going to start coming and we're going to start seeing that show up in the Cambridge reports, et cetera. People are going to be remarking portfolios, I think, in my mind, pretty drastically. Early stage, I think, will be somewhat, but not 100% insulated from that. I think where it really is going to come down is just simply deal terms. But again, specifically for the Northwest region, I think that decline in valuations is going to be smaller than what you're going to see in other areas like Silicon Valley, for example. That's just my personal opinion. Got it. Interesting. So you think there's a lag because in our because we tend to invest more in later stage, we feel like a lot of valuations have already corrected. But what you, if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that has not necessarily translated into lower valuations at the Series A and B level. That's correct. Yeah, I have not yet seen that to any degree that kind of would give me pause right now. I know it's coming and I absolutely do believe it's coming to the extent it occurs in the different regions. It's to be seen, but I do believe that everybody's going to face maybe not down rounds, but flat rounds. And you're going to see people who wanted to go for that A probably do a seed two, a seed three. Having been a serial entrepreneur and a successful one at that, what do you think the three most important attributes are to being a successful founder? And I would imagine they're probably the same three that you also <laughs> hopefully look for and in, in obviously your own investments. The funny thing about being a former founder is what not to do. At least you tell yourself that. I think it's there, the three things, and again, I mean, there's a number of lessons you can share with people, but, the, but what I try to basically tell our founders is, look, just be relentless in the rigor that you apply to your business. We've come across founders who've presented to us who talk about, hey, look, everybody's talking about us. I've been written up in TechCrunch and Entrepreneur Magazine three separate times. We're doing this and this. And it's like, okay, great. That's awesome. You've got a lot of heat around you. But now, okay, show me how that's resolving itself into the actual business and the metrics that are going to drive success here. And I think that's where you get a really long pause in the conversation. And so we tell people press and social media you know, mentions, it can get you traction, but it is not traction in and of itself. So just be rigorous and focusing on the KPIs that drive success for you. Two, 
Don't be afraid to fail. Look at your board as basically your psychologist. We are here to hear the problems, your fears, et cetera. We're not here to basically present you with a gotcha because you said, hey, look, I just don't know what I'm doing right now. I've got to bounce this off somebody. So don't be afraid to talk to your board. Our job is to be there for you and to help navigate using our pattern recognition. And then I think finally just realize we're not curing cancer by and large. We are doing some fantastic things in the companies and in the spaces that we're investing in. But let's be real. The world is not going to end if a launch doesn't happen on a certain date. We want to do it right Let's be thoughtful and just don't worry, just focus. Do what you love. This shouldn't stress you out and cause you problems in your personal life. Yeah, no, that's great advice. It could be antithesis, right? To some of the other investors are like, no, 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 you got to hit, hit, hit. We are very rigorous in that regard, but at the same time too, if we want to build enduring companies, you can't be burning people out. Yeah, and do it right. That makes a lot of sense. Where do you see venture capital and early stage investing? What does that look like a couple of years down the road? How do you see the VC landscape and ecosystem changing, if at all? My hope is that we start seeing much more diversity occur within the venture capital space. When you look at the number of female founders that are getting funded vis-a-vis you know, -vis the broader market space, when you see the amount of female partners, actual managing directors in some of these firms, we have a lot of work to do as an industry. And it's hard, right? Because the opportunity set of female entrepreneurs and founders is actually small relative to the amount of males in there. But we're not going to change that unless we start placing bets behind these people and encouraging other women who want, who are young girls who are thinking about going into STEM, showing them that there actually is a path, right, for success and that people want to back them and believe in them. So I think that's critically important. So my hope is that over the next, say, three to five years, we as an industry have gotten a heck of a lot better with that. I think too, like we talked about a little earlier, this rationalization that we're going through right now after 15 years of kind of a kind of crazy bull market will allow for much more thoughtful investing. I think the counterpoint to that is that we still have a lot of very cheap capital in the market that is yet to be deployed. And that creates a moral hazard. And so I'm hoping that over this course, we've learned from the past, we can avoid the moral hazard of just simply throwing money out there in kind of anything without any real due diligence and start focusing on building enduring companies. So those are my two kind of primary things. So do you lead most of the rounds in, you, in which you participate or co-lead or what's your approach? We typically lead or co-lead. We like to have a board seat. I think all but one of our investments we've taken a board seat on, but we like to have a seat at the table at the end of the day. If we are highly convicted and let's say we're co-investing with people that we know and trust and have had partnerships over the years, yeah, we're happy to sit back if the round is large enough and it's, it exceeds kind of our initial check size. That's totally fine. We have not had, like I said, other than one, we have not had that situation happen. So we like to do that. Good. So I'm a new entrepreneur. I've just been invited to pitch Anthony. First <laughs> meeting, what two questions? What must I do to make sure that I do well in that first pitch? And then what are some pet peeves that you have about founders pitching? Oh gosh, the pet peeves, that's easy. I think the thing to really catch my attention is have a very solid understanding of the problem you're solving and how you intend to solve it. And it's gotta be crisp, right? If you can't convey that to me very, very simply to where I can repeat it back to you in my own narrative and nail it spot on, you've missed the opportunity here. And 
like any investors, we're looking at so many deals on a daily and a weekly and a monthly basis. You've got to be able to stand out. And the ones that stand out know their market inside and out, and they know how they're solving it. And they understand deeply whether this is a true pain pill or simply a vitamin. So I think that's critically important. Two, just being excited about this. Show me this is a passion or you're not just basically trying to benefit from the free money that's still currently in the marketplace by throwing a startup up with a really fancy slide deck. I don't care if it's written in crayon. Let's show me we're solving something that's real. And I think finally, just making sure that you've got both a business and a strong technology co-founding set. You've got to have that yin and yang. If it's just a business guy, it's going to be tough. You've got to go out there and find your technology guy. And typically, if you're if that if that lead tech person is not a founder in the business, we've seen that not work out very well. And so we like to see the duality there. And then, like I said, finally, if there's a, a diverse team, we always score that very high. From a pet peeve perspective, a slide on your deck that shows me 18 different advisors, all of which who are probably taking equity from you and not adding any real value other than just putting nice pictures and logos on there, that's a turnoff. We've seen companies where they're actually bringing on people who are, oh, this person's a social media expert and this person was on MSNBC. And it's like, yeah, but you're a hardware business. How is that really going to do anything but increase your burn right, with these very expensive people? So that's a pet peeve of mine. It's like, I don't need to see the advisors. If your idea and your market and the business can stand on its own, that's like a waste of a slide in my mind. With a team in mind, do you tend to shy away from single founders versus an actual team? Or how do you view that? If you've got a single founder, we'd have to have real conviction on the single founder play. Just before that very reason that I just talked about is if it's a business founder and there's no technology lead on the founding side of that thing, it's just hard. At the same time, if it's a technology founder and you've got no business lead, that's also has historically shown to be a little bit problematic. That's simply been my experience. I'm sure others have had different experiences and they're totally fine with that. But where we typically enter a company, that's usually already been addressed. There already is that, that two or three person SLT. And we're deploying, look, our entry checks size is anywhere from 500K to 5 million. So we can run the gamut. We're typically in the $3 million range. We do set aside for reserves. So we basically pro forma investing upwards of 10 million in each of our companies. Again, we want to be partners for the long term. We want to participate in follow-on rounds and make sure we're adding value. With that, we will switch over to our four standard question segment. We're looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first question is our NVCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there was one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be? I think I touched on this earlier in our chat is the diversity piece. I just think that as an industry, we have a long ways to go to really make a dent in this, this very important topic, not just for the VC industry, but for society in general. So I think that's one area I would like to see more of. And I know it, it's a tough, tough thing to really get going and build muscle memory around. It's I just, I applaud what we've done to date so far as, as an industry, but we've got more work to do there. Number two is if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? Oh gosh. I think I would probably still be an entrepreneur doing my own startup. I love building things, tackling tough projects, working with small teams and setting the world on fire. That just, that gets me excited. And that's one of the reasons I became a VC having done a couple of startups of my own. Now I get to see a whole host of opportunities and businesses and ideas. And that just, nothing gets me more excited than that. So I think I would be back doing my running my own startup. That's awesome. Do you have any like idea that's just running around in the back of your head? I do, but 
I'm not sure if I should share it. No, I'm kidding. There's been a lot of talk about the metaverse in these different digital environments. And if you think about it, the only way that's going to work, because there's not going to be one central company who's going to have the Uber metaverse. There's going to be different versions of that. But if there's a way to tie those together in a central location where you as an individual coming in, you can go into this, let's just call it a piazza or a lobby and say, I want to do the meta metaverse, or I want to go and I want to do Apple's metaverse over here today and have a lot of those. Metaverse shopping mall. Exactly. Can I translate amongst those, be able to take, say, what I bought in Apple and take it over to the meta space? It's very ready player one-ish to a certain degree. But I think that's something that the industry is going to need to figure out because it's not going to be a winner takes all. There's going to be a, a number of winners and we have to be able to allow for that cross-pollinization. hundred percent. I love it. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? Let's see. Gosh, 10, 12 years ago, I met a gentleman, Gary Brinson. He's probably one of the top value investors up there with Bill Gross and Warren Buffett. When you look at some of the top folks out there, Seattle native based in Chicago, has done extraordinarily well. And I got to know him over the last 10, 12 years, I mentioned. And he's just got this very pragmatic outlook on life, the world, investing. It's very fundamentals driven in terms of how he looks at things. And I'm, as a finance guy growing up in college and all that kind of stuff, I appreciate that aspect of him. It's just like, look, at the end of the day, math's not going to lie. This is how you're going to have to look through things. But at the same time too, he's just an incredible philanthropist. And he's, and he's just has this lens on life that says there's something bigger than us. And we're not here just to hoard this stuff. We're here to try and help make the world better. And so how do we do that? Well, we deploy our skill and our capital resources and our individual resources to doing that. And now that he's in his 80s, he's even doing that at a scale that's just crazy right now. And so I love that. And he's trying to basically instill on me. He's like, look, right now in your career, right where you are, and I'm not going to say my age, this is the time for you now to start building that early muscle memory, as I like to call it. And he's right. And he's just been a great mentor to me over the years in helping me think through what my legacy is going to be beyond VC, beyond entrepreneurship, et cetera. And I think that's important. No, oh, that's great. I'm sure he'd be really happy to hear you say that too. Lastly, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Oh, goodness. Don't take yourself seriously or too seriously. It's easy to get over your skis in terms of how you view yourself and your place in the world. You can be the best VC stamping out 10, 20 X's for all your LPs. But at the end of the day, you're just a person doing a job that you're being paid pretty well to do. So enjoy it, but just don't take yourself too seriously. That's great. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us today. We enjoyed learning about your group and about you in particular. Appreciate it. Thanks you all for your time. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC. Mm-hmm.